This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. It is once again November, which means you hopefully have only been watching moody crime dramas that feature femme fatales and gumshoe detectives as we once again celebrate November. For the last two years, we've done an episode on the subject, and returning to help us out is Alicia Mugel, who alongside Rachel helps run the Asian Cut, and whose work can also be read on Film Days, Exclaim, and much more. She was last heard on episode 216, Fox Film Noirs, where we looked at the noirs all produced by 20th Century Fox. Today, she's helping us discuss McCarthyism in film noir. Welcome back to the show, Alicia. How are you? I am super well and feeling very, you know, gloomy because of the noir, but uh, in a good way, in a good way. (laughs) Do you have a pane of light just hitting your eyes at the right angle? Oh, absolutely. Shaft of light and like, you know, lurking in the shadows is a man in a suit with a (laughs) little hat and a gun. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I'm very excited. I didn't realize it had been a full year since you'd last been on the show, and the last one was our, our Noir-vember-themed episode, uh, but it, it was funny. A few weeks ago, I was talking with Rachel. I was like, hey, I kind of want to do a Noir-vember episode. Let's see if uh, Alicia's available. Uh, so I'm so happy that you uh, you want to come back for this one. I'm so happy you guys uh, invited me. Yeah, I love, I love talking film, and I'm super excited for today's episode. Well, excellent. Let, uh, let's get into this a little bit. So uh, today might be one of our most interesting and definitely overt political subjects we've ever covered on the show. Uh, Joseph McCarthy was a Republican United States Senator from 1947 to 1957, where he was most well known for claiming that the U.S. government, the military, universities, and Hollywood were filled with communist spies, stealing information, and handing it over to Russia during the height of the Cold War, as he claimed they were enemies within the country. These accusations helped spur numerous committees to root out a supposed Red Scare, most notably the House Un-American Activities, or HUAC. McCarthy wasn't directly involved with HUAC, which specifically took aim at Hollywood. Their tactics were labeled as McCarthyism, as both Senator McCarthy's hearings and HUACs used intimidation in an attempt to root out supposed communists, and was later branded a witch hunt, as it mostly served to target people with leftist ideology, women, the queer community, and people of color. Instances of McCarthyism still take place today in a vain attempt at faux patriotism. Today we're looking at three films that explore the themes of McCarthyism in various angles. First is On the Waterfront from 1954, directed by Elia Kazan and starring Marlon Brando and Kim Novak. Second is Storm Center from 1956, directed by Daniel Teradash and starring Betty Davis. And lastly is Witch Hunt from 1994, directed by Paul Schrader and starring Dennis Hopper. Alicia, when Rachel and I asked you to come on this year's November episode, we asked if you had any topics or themes you wanted to cover, and you immediately came back with the idea of McCarthyism in these three films. Before we get into them, I'd love to know why you picked them and this theme. For sure. So I picked this topic uh, before the events of this past week. Uh, It was a moment when we were all kind of a bit incredulously and also wearily saying that it was a bit like McCarthyism, the right scare, the way, the way that people showing support for Palestine and Palestinian people in the face of, of genocidal violence were being kind of torn down. These were both private citizens and also public figures that were kind of uh, being ridiculed, bullied and stuff for showing, making being vocal about their their view, uh, views and their position politically. Um, but then we learned this past week that there really is a sort of unspoken blacklist going around in Hollywood with um, Melissa Barrera and then Susan Sarandon being dropped by their firms uh, or projects for voicing support for Palestine. So it's kind of curious what's going on right now because there's clearly a very distinct difference between now and the events of the 50s with McCarthyism because in the 50s people lost their livelihoods over these paranoid accusations um, while now people are losing their livelihoods and being attacked for something much more real, uh, kind of like their stance against genocide. So history is repeating itself, but this time matters are so much more grim and dire and it's, it's heartbreaking. And so the films uh, that uh, we picked collectively, um, they are produced by the system of Hollywood and they are noirs, which traditionally do uh, kind of look at the underbelly of things. But yeah, I, I just think that they're interesting subjects of study. Each of them takes a unique stand within a sort of naming names event, either for or against or ambivalent within this dynamic. But I think their study is worthwhile, regardless of the stance, even as I said, if it is a bit disheartening, because as we, you know, it's the same thing is happening again, except in a much more immediate sense. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree that it, it seems even more timely than when you had first suggested it. But I like to also think that, you know, you suggesting this idea, it's not like, you know, McCarthyism or this idea of sort of uh, rooting out uh, undesirables went away in the mid-1950s when sort of the Red Scare died down. It's sort of always been a bit of a tactic uh, done by politically right-wing leaning people to try to discredit people that might have ideas that go against, you know, what is uh, best for what is called patriotism and things like that. And so I I think noir in general has always been a a very fertile genre, as you talked about, of being able to, to root out ways to talk about this idea of uh, what is considered patriotic, what is considered specifically un-American or American, uh, what is best for citizens as a whole or, or things like that, freedom of expression. And so definitely it was, it, was a, it was an idea that when you mentioned it, I thought was a very interesting one. And certainly over the last week or so, it has proven to be an even more uh, timely topic than I think even you could have imagined when you had suggested it. Mm-hmm. I think too, with when we talk about McCarthyism, like I, I know it's it's very politically charged, but the first person I thought of um, when we were kind of diving into this was Brendan Fraser, oddly, mm. and I know he wasn't blacklisted for a political reason, but it was because that idea of him being an undesirable troublemaker, basically, in the eyes of Hollywood, anyways. And so to me, it's just like Hollywood has a good history of not a good history, but like a healthy history of weeding out the people that they don't want in there if if they don't kind of align to the narrative that they want to serve at that time then they're more than willing to let them go which shows like you know brendan fraser got a second life after you know collectively we all decided that sexual harassment wasn't right which took a little Mm -hmm. while to agree with about that but you know it's fine it happened but yeah it's it's an interesting topic and i'm glad that um alicia that you suggested this one because i think it's not just is it topical, but it's just a fascinating kind of machination of Hollywood and the film industry as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. Hollywood really sort of occupies this weird space where it is this bastion of, you know, for the most part, left-wing ideology in terms of people that are making these movies are, you know, care about social causes and, and the common person and, and have a worldview that exists outside their own front door. But it's also at the very top, uh, a money making machine where its purpose is to make as much money as possible. And that means, uh, you know, not wanting to step on certain toes or offend certain groups of people or call out certain things. And so these are two very diametrically opposed ideas. And, you know, we, we just finished two, the two longest strikes in, in the history of film, both on the writers and actor side, because the producers didn't want to give a living wage to the writers and the actors. And so it's, you know, constantly these two groups of people, which, you know, we can call Hollywood as a whole, isn't really one singular monolith. It is, you know, two very distinct groups, which are then broken down into even more groups of, of ways that people want to present their ideas and their artistic merits. So uh, definitely a, a very fertile theme for sure. Yeah. And I think On the Waterfront is a great um, depiction of that stratification within Hollywood as a system. Um, the different groups kind of like going at each other and fighting for what they believe is right. He won in my philosophy of life. Do it to him before he does it to you. What do you want? Your gun. We got the baddest beers and the baddest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out, we take our gun. Who'd want to kill Joey? Who'd want to kill Joey? Listen, you know who the pistols are. You're going to keep still until they cut you down one by one? Yeah, I think that is a great segue. So yeah, first up uh, is On the Waterfront. The film follows Terry Malloy, played by Marlon Brando, a longshoreman and occasional tough guy for the union leader Johnny Friendly. 
After helping set up the murder of a co-worker who testified to state authorities about mob activity in the Union, Terry starts to question his surroundings as a local priest in the Dead Man's Sister tried to rally people together to root out corruption at the docks. The film was originally written by Arthur Miller, but after director Ilya Kazan appeared before HUAC and gave what was referred to as a friendly testimony, where he didn't name any new names, he acted as a supporting witness naming people who had already been identified as quote-unquote communists. Miller subsequently dropped out of the film. The film is viewed as Kazan trying to do the right thing and root out corruption in his own industry. The movie went on to win Best Picture at the Oscars and was an explosively decisive, divisive film amongst the film community. I love this film, but personally I've always found the real-life politics of it confusing at best. Alicia, I know before we start recording you said it was actually your first time you'd ever watch it, but I'd love to start with you on your thoughts and interpretations of this movie. It Okay, so I will I will say visually um, and performatively it acting is amazing visually it's so so great lovely um i just i don't like the message of it and i, I don't like kazan kind of like doubling down on you know he's like i did the right thing and i want to explain to you how the uh it's tough making a choice and you know everyone it just it it confuses it, it makes me angry i think and yeah that's it yeah, for me, I, I sort of agree with you because like when, when I watch this movie, if you take this movie solely in a vacuum, it's its own thing. You ignore, you know, who the director was and what era this came out. This this sort of idea of um, mob ruling uh, a union or, you know, an industry in general where people are intimidated using acts of violence up to and including murder. And you have you know, the the state wanting to do the right thing to root out corruption, to ensure that everyone, you know, has a, a, a safe and healthy working environment and you come together and you stand up against these people, these oppressors who are literally murdering people. And by you doing that, everyone joins in unison with you. And at the end of the day, you take back your union, which includes fair wages and, and things like a safe working conditions, all that sort of stuff on the surface. It is a, you know, you watch this and you're like, oh, I agree with everything this movie is saying. I get what you want. You don't want people murdering people for speaking out against, you know, uh, robbery and theft and and other acts of intimidation. But then once you start to bring in the, the Kazan factor and the fact that this was right in the, the height of the Red Scare and HUAC and all that sort of stuff, suddenly you can't really take this movie on its own. It's a movie that needs its extra textual um, uh, diagnosis, interpretations of it, if, if you will. So it's it's one that I've always sort of struggled with in my admiration of. Uh, what about you, Rachel? What uh, What's your history of, of this film and your thoughts on it? So I love this movie. Um, I know I know all of the things about it, like on the back end of, of it and the motivations and the, the history and the politics behind it. But I actually find... I think that it makes this movie all that more fascinating, to be honest, because like on, on its own, like both, like what you both just said, objectively, it is an incredibly well-made movie. Like it's, it's in, like the performances across the board, everyone's good and it's made incredibly well. The script is great. Music is great. Everything about it as a film is, I think, very difficult to argue against. And Ilya Kazan using this as a way to justify his, actions and you know and also basically pin up you know the the actors guild for turning against him in that way i think it's not correct it's not right and it's but at, well, at the same time he is a director and he has it's we allow artists to to do that we we give artists space to put their life up on screen and paintings in music whatever it might be if if just because it's something that we don't agree with that's not really you know, that's kind of neither here nor there. But I do find that the historical context of it makes this movie that much more fascinating. And I think it is what has made it endured for as long as it has, because I think it is a great movie, like I said, and it is one that will be studied by film students forever and always. But it is also one that is a really good um, film to look at in terms of the politics of the time and to to have that kind of context with it and i think that that is a part of its legacy and i just find it it's interesting like i just find it makes it that, a, a much more fascinating thing it doesn't necessarily take my enjoyment 
of the film away um in the same way like alicia and i were talking i'm sure we'll talk about brando later but um alicia and i were talking this morning about like you know brando was a real dick in his lifetime like we're all very aware that he was not the nicest person in the world but when you watch a movie like this and a performance like this you're like oh damn he's so good so it's to me it's kind of like that like you there's a bit of a separation there that um i have and i i understand that though it is uh, a movie that doesn't as Dakota, as you said, it doesn't quite sit that well with a lot of people. I love this description uh, of, of the film. It's by a publication called Time Out Film Guide, and they say of the film that it's undermined by its embarrassing special pleading on behalf of informers, which <laughs> I think perfectly kind of sums up my feelings toward it. it. Yeah, Brando is stunning in it. Like he is in this film with his whole body, like the way he moves, it's almost like he's just doing this dance. And even even Brie is saying she kind of looks stiff in comparison to him. The way he just he seems warm and like oh, it's 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 so good. But then he plays this guy who's kind of like an average Joe who doesn't really think about. He's in this privileged position of being like the straight white guy um, who doesn't have to think about politics until it starts to affect him. Um, and that kind of he, I guess because narratively you would use that viewpoint to kind of bring the uh, have us the audience in his place but um a lot of people a lot of women are and um people in marginalized communities we're already having like a we already live a very politicized um life so it's kind of it's just i i think i'm not sure if i'm articulating this well but what i mean to say is that this guy doesn't begin to care about what's going on until it starts to affect him and so he has he's it's hard for him to have empathy for um, even the Joey kid who, who uh, gets killed earlier on, even um, even Marie Saint's character, uh, and he tries to strike up a romance with her when she's like so clearly heartbroken. It's, it's weird watching that, um, and it it just says a lot of fascinating things about the way privilege makes um, a person in society. Yeah, and I, I think with this movie in particular, the fact that the uh, the anti-union corruption angle is sort of headed up by uh, by Edie Doyle and, and Father Barry. You know, the Eva Marie Saint and, and Carl Malden character is, is very interesting because, like you're talking about, it's it's a woman and then uh, a Catholic priest. And obviously, religion has a very very complicated history. Um, and but at the time, Catholicism was seen as uh, a bit of a lesser religion in the United States. So it's very interesting that you've got uh, a woman and a priest sort of leading the charge and sort of doing what you were just talking about there, Alicia. They're the ones that, like, it doesn't have to personally affect them to know what is right and what is wrong in their worldview. And so they're the ones that are sort of leading this charge in rope in Terry, who then is able to eventually, by the end of the movie, convince the rest of the guys working at the docks to to join in solidarity of of uh, of not listening to the corrupt union boss. So it's, it's very interesting how Kazan is using the uh, real-life I don't want to call them tropes because it's not tropes. It's the, using real life of the people who are actually uh, against, you know, the naming of names of putting them as the front and center and sort of in his own way subverting what he was trying to do. Totally agree. <laughs> um, there's a there's a great scene where you know where Father Barry and Edie are are hosting a, a meeting in the church and. Uh, Terry is actually asked by the Johnny Friendly to attend the meeting and take down names and numbers and let them know who is there. And so I felt like that was the most explicit part of the movie that was, this is what this is a one-to-one allegory of. I also find, like, I, so again, Alicia and I are chatting about this movie this morning, but I was talking about that, you know, the really famous line, the Palookaville and the, like, it could have been a contender. I'm really good at impressions. Um, but I was was watching and I was thinking, I was like, so does Ilya Kazan think that he was like that that he was shafted in this way, that like he was that he could have been a contender, he could have been somebody, and now he's just a bum? Like is that is like is that what he thought of himself? Which is a very uh 
I suppose, a very humble brag way of looking at his life because he was already very successful by the time he made this movie. But I like looking at again, like that's what I find interesting about this movie is like a quote like that on its own. It's pretty awesome. Um, in, and especially it's Brando's delivery that makes it awesome. But when I think about did Ilya Kazan think that about himself, like that just makes it so much more amusing and and interesting, like and just fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking at Kazan's career, it's certainly an odd one because in, in 1951, he made a streetcar named Desire. And so this movie is only three years after that. And so yeah. a lot had transpired in that three years. He did make two movies, including another one that starred Brando, Viva Zapata. Um, and then the year after on the waterfront, he did East of Eden, which was, you know, also up there as one of his most acclaimed films in 1955. After that, his his career really started to, to dwindle. I would say really the only super notable movie he had made afterwards was Splendor in the Grass in 1961. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, what was the, the next generation of Hollywood sort of not standing with him. And during the breakdown of the studio system, he was someone that, you know, was, uh, I guess if you're playing a game of musical chairs left without a chair uh, afterwards of people sort of aligning themselves of where they wanted the Hollywood system to move forwards. I think though it does say something about him as a filmmaker that his work, like his his abilities, his techniques, they have remained though. Like they have endured people. Nobody kind of doubts that. And um, Alicia came across a really good, uh, Orson Welles clip quote uh, was it Alicia that that you found yeah. that you're you're mentioning it to me before. I I love it so much because um, I think I'm not sure where he is as a reporter asks him to comment on Kazan and he just refuses calls him a traitor. He's like I refuse to talk about him. I respect his ability as an artist. He is a good artist, but I don't want to talk about him because he. I mean. He, yeah, I mean, and Orson Welles, I think, does note it in the clip. Like, he has, he had a career, still has a career mm-hmm. in New York, still makes films, still has friends. Um, because Ilya Kazan is a traitor. He is a man who sold to McCarthy all of his companions at a time when he could continue to work in New York at high salary. And having sold all of his people to McCarthy, he then made a film called On the Waterfront, which was a celebration of the informer. I don't know why he thinks that. I did also find an interesting article um, from 1999 when he did win a Lifetime Achievement Oscar. Um, it's, the article says, television cameras caught Warren Beatty, Helen Hunt, and Meryl Streep standing up and applauding as Kazan was walking up to get his award. But Steven Spielberg remained seated, although he did applaud. Actors Nick Nolte, Ed Harris, and Amy Madigan made a point of staying in their seats and not applauding, which, you know, many, the, the title of the article says, many refuse to clap as Kazan receives, receives Oscar. So that moment was the first time I became aware of who Ilya Kazan was. Um, I remember seeing it like at, the, and I was really confused. I didn't know why it just looks awkward when like only a few people are standing and then some people are sitting in a crowd and it just felt weird. And I, I didn't really get it. I don't know how old I would have been. Um, but that made me look him up and under like, I, cause I was very confused as to that, but it was that exact moment at the Oscars. Cause I, I I really like Meryl Streep. I'm a big, big, big Meryl fan. And to see her kind of, cause she not only stands up, like she jumps up, she does it with like such, you know, and it, to the point that you're thinking she's doing it on purpose. Like she's making a point because they know who's receiving the lifetime achievement award. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's a surprise that somebody won a lifetime achievement award. Um, but the way she stands up, it's all, like, she literally kind of jumps up out of her seat uh, when she does it. And it just kind of fast, again, fascinated. I keep saying that, but it just amused me. And, um, that Orson Welles clip that Alicia was talking about, the thing I love about most is that Orson Welles has such a way of speaking. Mm-hmm. He has such a, like his, he's got like a, a funky accent. He's like a low voice. He's very bellowing. Um, and so hearing him talk like about Kazan and so passionately, but also, you know, saying like, yeah, he's great. And, that point of saying he still has a career. He still is very well-respected and is very successful. Like 
what's he kind of what's he kind of crying about i suppose which is another argument a lot of people make today when we talk about cancel culture and saying well like a lot of these people still have careers and they're still doing very well they're doing just fine uh maybe they're not popular on twitter anymore but like who gives a shit like they're still doing absolutely fine yeah. yeah, I think I think that is a, a great uh, connection, you know, between yesteryear and what's happening today. And like, I'll also add that Streep is someone who has a history of some very messy politics herself mm-hmm. and uh, someone who uh, definitely a, maybe don't meet your heroes type of person um, <laughs> at best. But uh, but I agree with your idea of, of you know, what modern co- cancel culture and, and things like that, which is, you know, a, a terminology I really hate more so because it's just like, man, this is just me sort of speaking with my wallet and being like, I am taking a principled stand against something I dislike. You know what? You do what you want to do, but I'm not going to spend my money and my time on this person or this thing. And, and so it's it's a very frustrating topic of conversation one that i think is you know even bigger than what this podcast episode could contain <laughs> could do a whole episode on that we probably could uh all right let us move on though to our our next film which is one called storm center some people lead very exciting lives locked in a laboratory or even a library We say to the communists, we do not fear you. We are not afraid of what you have to say, but you fear us. You don't belong here. You're not the librarian anymore. You're the communist. The communist. The communist. The communist. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. And this is one of the first films to deal with McCarthyism in the Red Scare head on, quite literally. Betty Davis plays Alicia Hull, a librarian in a small town who is asked by city council to remove a single book, The Communist Dream, from the shelves. After refusing to remove it on the grounds of anti-censorship, Alicia is fired from her job as the council sows distrust in both her and the role of libraries, which was standing in for freedom of expression, creating a mob mentality that literally ends with a book burning. There is no hiding where this film stands as ambiguity is done away with and said heart of aunt slave monologues take its place. The film comes in an era of downturn for Davis as it was six years after her run of Oscar excellence had ended in 1950, but before her resurgence in the 1960s. This movie is also the least noir-like of the three. So I'm curious, Alicia, what made you want to talk about this film? This one, actually, I think Rachel picked, um, but I, that would watch anything Davis is in. Um, it uh, is fascinating because I want to make the connection to um, Terry in on the waterfront and then Alicia in this one. So what I think what I was trying to say earlier in that he kind of begins the film as kind of like a blank slate, no like political ideology, Alicia in this one, she has uh, opinions. She has thoughts from the get go. Um, ideas like even if I don't agree with XYZ opinions, I'm still going to keep them in the library because they uh, people allowed have the right to know that this is what is out there, which I I love and I think uh, Davis wears that personality so beautifully. Even uh, she walks with such a straight back and like that stature and it's beautiful, but her voice it's so small and elegant and wispy, so distinct from her natural talking voice. It's she does such a cool job here and. It's very intimidating, and I think almost noir-esque, the confidence she wears. It's uh, an intriguing uh, spin on the femme fatale, I think. Well, what about you, Rachel? How did this movie come across your radar? Uh, I was just Googling film noir McCarthy, (laughs) if I'm completely honest. And then I came across this movie, and for me, like, I'm not I'm I haven't watched every Betty Davis movie there is and uh, I do very much so like her though there's something about her uh presence on screen that I find this is very amusing like I find, I'm very tickled by her work everything that she does and like just the way she speaks the way she does. so when I saw that there was this movie I never even heard of it before to be honest um I just thought maybe it would be an interesting add on but then I was just looking at um my WhatsApp with Alicia and I was like I, when I suggested, it, I said, is it too on the nose? Because it is very <laughs> obvious what they're trying to say in this. Like, it's not, there is no subtlety. There is no, none of that. But, you know, hey, that's, they're 
plenty of subtle movies out there. Sometimes you don't need them to be subtle, but um, I enjoyed this one though. I liked it. I thought it was interesting. I was funny to read some of um, Betty Davis's remarks though, about it basically being like, this movie didn't work out like I thought. And it was because of the the boy actor, like the child actor. Oh my God. Betty, like, what are you doing? He's a kid. But that is a very Betty Davis thing to say though, isn't it? Which I think is funny. I do want to say, so everyone talks about how the girl in a Philadelphia story is that little girl character um, is the most annoying kid on, on film. I want to say that this boy <laughs> in this movie, the most annoying child I have ever seen on film. So I annoying. have never disliked a character more. He's it's terrible. Just, he's so, so annoying. But like, I suppose he's kind of meant to be annoying, but like, so Betty Davis, what, um, well, anyways, according to Wikipedia, what she said was, um, he like the whole heart of the film is supposed to be the relationship between the librarian and the kid. And he's like, mm-hmm. that wasn't there. Cause the kid's not warm. Like there's no warmth to this child. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, I've how many people today would, I mean, even back then, not many people are willing to criticize child actors in that way. Yeah. And so publicly, yeah. um, but Betty Davis, what does she have to lose? I suppose. And it, it's really tough because like I, I look at the performance of this kid and the movie starts out, I think, decently setting up this uh, friendship between Betty Davis and this young child of, you know, he loves reading. And so she's encouraging and nurturing that and uh, trying to get him to explore different books and all this sort of stuff. And then once he sort of has this spin where, you know, uh, after she gets fired from her job and the boy's dad is like, oh, she's a communist, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it really sort of affects him. And you know what? Honestly, like, yeah, he's overacting and not a great actor. But I think in terms of, of what the plot needs and, and the way the, the story is structured, I think he does a fine enough job of like, I get it. He's overacting and it's it's not great. It's, it's a little whiny and grating. But like you know, the the beats that he should be hitting, he should be a little over the top because he feels mm-hmm. so betrayed of of what's happening. And, you know, he's he went from trusting one authority figure being the librarian to trusting a different authority figure, which was his father, who has been working hard to try to gain a relationship with his, his son that is so different than him that, of course, he kind of goes like, you know, whole hog into this like crazy little right-wing Nazi shit sort of thing. Um... <laughs> I think it's 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 an interesting movie to show like how a child would deal with this type of information because I think for us it's a little we we weren't living in a time growing up where like communism was this, was a threat like it wasn't like yeah. that we didn't really have to consider these things but I can imagine for a child how confusing that must have been because all your he, friends and teachers yeah, are saying communists are bad you hear it on the news and your dad's railing about it at the dinner <laughs> table like all that sort of stuff and it shows too how malleable kids are and why it is so important that, you know, they always say, you know, racism is something that is taught. It is not something that is, you know, just born within us. And that's why it's so important when, you know, for parents, teachers, anybody who who has a responsibility in, in teaching our youth or raising our youth, it's like, it. it's such an important job because they are very, very impressionable and they're very confused because they just, they don't have the faculties at that age to really reconcile and assess and analyze properly. That comes later in life, but you know, you set them on a path now. So maybe there's a reason the kid was such a little dipshit. Like he's just, (laughs) he's just a confused little boy who doesn't Mm -hmm. understand. And, and especially as a boy, how do they typically react? It's usually in fits of anger and um, screaming and yelling because that's all they know how to do. Hey. <laughs> Something I really appreciate about the film is how it does bake that psych- psychology or, yeah, psych- psychology into it. So, like, um, in the 50s, pop psychology would have been, like, really a big deal and, like, how mm-hmm. to raise children, right? And the the film does take a really interesting look at that with the family dy- dynamic of the little boy. You have the father and the mother fighting, and he's, like, overhearing it, and you kind of see how a person becomes the person that they are yeah. through. Um, there's, like, those ideas of when the, the mother, mom and the dad have the final fight at the end. She's like, this is where he's getting this from. It's from you. You're, you are uncultured, and he's, he's picked all of this up from you. So you have these ideas of, like, nature versus nurture like kids potentially picking up racist or uh, anti-communist ideology 
from the birth <laughs> and also from like discourse and stuff. So that it, it's uh, very intelligent in that sense, the film. Yeah, I don't know I what Betty Davis is talking about. It's absolutely fine. Like, that's her problem. <laughs> <laughs> I I think for, for Betty Davis, this just came at a weird part in her career yeah. where she no longer was, you know, the queen of Hollywood. And it was before whatever happened to Baby Jane, which sort of sparked a resurgence in her career. And I think it was just sort of her floundering in an era where the movie was criticized for being, you know, dealing too much with a popular subject at the time that may not have been popular to go to the movies to see and, and all that sort of stuff. It was, it's clearly a low budget movie compared to, to the other stuff that she had done mm-hmm. that she's most notable for. Uh, and I think it was just one of those things where it's like, well, it's clearly not me. That was the fault. It must've been that little <laughs> annoying kid. That was the fault. I love that part of, of like legacy actors and athletes as well. I'm going to say like, I think, I really enjoy a story of like ups and downs and ups again. Um, and I, I love seeing where looking back when we look at these actors, like we all consider Betty Davis to be a legend in Hollywood. And, mm-hmm. but I'm sure in this moment in her career, she felt like the lowest of the low and that idea of like, mm-hmm. nobody's going to remember me. Like I'm, I'm finished. I'm just washed in this, in, in this industry, whatever. Um, and obviously she wouldn't have no idea about, well, maybe she did later on in her life. Maybe she did understand what a legend she did become, but um, the fact that, I mean, she, she died in, in 1989 and we're still watching her stuff on YouTube. Like that's obviously she couldn't have thought about that, but I do love that. And I do love that this kind of movie was a part of it. Um, Cause like you said, it's so different from what she had been doing. Not too prior, like not, not too um, far off from, from this film. And it does seem like, I'm sure to her, maybe it was a bit of a hit to her ego um, having to have this stupid child yell at her all the time but like you know it it's it's a part of her kind of career trajectory and i love that i love that kind of stuff i want to talk a bit more about the the sort of library aspect as a whole and and what it sort of all means uh when when alicia the bay davis character is you know being uh talked to by the city council she's talking about how it's basically she doesn't say these words but she's giving a, a slippery slope argument of well if we ban this one book what's the next one and of course the, at the start the count is like it's only ever going to be this book we're never going to ban anything else and then it, it devolves into well you know uh if something else comes up that people you know don't like or is disagreeable maybe we'll have a talk about it and then eventually they sort of land on you know we're going to have to approve all books that go in the <laughs> library it's it very quickly goes to that and so i think the film does a really good job of that and you know betty davis alicia rightly points out that like hey you know uh during world war ii we had mein Kampf in our library and you didn't have any objections to that and in fact i think having it so freely available allowed people to read and go hey hitlerism wasn't that great of a thing and maybe we shouldn't get swept up in it because it really was i know people forget about it nazism was quite popular in the united states despite the fact that uh, people like to whitewash uh, that it was ever a popular ideology. There was a Nazi rally at Madison Square Garden um, during the war, which is something that is crazy to think about today. Um, And ultimately, I think what is fascinating, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the city council seems to confuse communism with fascism. And... And and I think that's something that is, is very interesting to sort of look at, especially today, considering, you know, if you were to look at a base level, communism is a um, is an economic policy, not a political policy. It's turned into that, um, whereas what they're talking about is fascism, which is a political ideology and something that they are very, dis- very overtly displaying. So I thought that, that all was very fascinating to watch. But that's the thing, isn't it, with um, the Red Scare? It was a great because of the uh, Soviet Union. It was it, it, that's why people were afraid of communism because they thought that that's what it looked like. They didn't really understand what was really happening, and that kind of is what created that mass hysteria around it. And I think the way that they vocalize what they believe in the movie, what they believe communism is, is what a lot of Americans did genuinely believe it was. That you know, it was this kind of like antithetical to, to democracy it was like a weird place where you allow everyone like anybody to die to get to your whatever ends you want it was wild it's almost as if misinformation has existed long before the internet did, <laughs> mm-hmm. did it's crazy it's crazy yeah. you guys 
Yeah. Did you guys like this movie though? Like just generally as a film, like just as film enjoyment, kind of taking out the politics of it. Did you guys just enjoy it as a, as a movie? Aside from the child, I did. (laughs) 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 You did so much. He was really annoying. (laughs) It was fine for me. Uh, Nowhere near Betty Davis's best work, but I appreciate it that it was a character that I don't think I'd ever seen her play before, uh, being so mild-mannered and, you know, being like, these are my principles, this is what I stand for. I'm not going to argue and yell until I'm blue in the face. You know, you can either understand where I'm coming from or, or have a civil discussion, but I'm not going to, you know, engage in, in mudslinging tactics with you. And so I thought that was very fascinating because, you know, normally when we think Betty Davis, we think, you know, she is, you know— putting a line in the sand, stomping her foot down, and is going to tell you exactly how she feels and why you are wrong. Uh, Mm. And we don't get that at all. I think the film's budget really has a lot to do with the fact that this movie doesn't look great. And there's a few other annoying actors. The the father of the little boy is pretty annoying himself. Yes. I think he's meant to be, though. Like he's, I think, he, so I think the actor just did a really good job because he was the one that angered me the most by far in this movie. But again, I think he's he's meant to be that really sleazy, whatever kind of guy. I think it's one of those – this is one of those movies where like, you know, the ideology of, you know, what they're trying to achieve is all right there. They have it all perfected. The problem is they just need tiny little incremental improvements in, in different, you know, set direction and casting and things like that and this would be elevated to a classic movie status yeah yeah it's good ideas obviously like it's interesting and topical for the time and um i always love a good book burning session in a film like i always (laughs) find book burnings in movies to just be the most like the craziest thing in the world to happen um and yeah i i i enjoyed it i enjoyed the movie but it's i mean I agree with you, Dakota. It's definitely not. I think anybody would agree with you. It is not like <laughs> top 10 Betty Davis. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, I love it because she has the same name as me. And that hardly ever happens. Don't you find that weird? Okay. So I think our names, Alicia and Rachel, are not like uncommon names. They're pretty normal names. <laughs> but they are not names you see in movies very often. I mean, no. like every now and then, but not not very often. I find that always interesting. That's besides the point. We can move on from this. But yeah, I'm I'm with Alicia. I think it's fun when you see your name in a movie. Dakota, for you, that must be just, I mean, that doesn't happen very often for Dakotas. It's it? more the actresses behind it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last thing I'll say about this film is I found the, the book burning uh, was a powerful moment, but also a little funny because they were showing all these close-ups of, oh, look at all these important works that we're losing. We're yeah. losing Shakespeare and Voltaire and the Bible. And just like <laughs> scenes of like shots of like someone literally turning a page as the book is burning. You don't see the hand turning it and it's supposed to look like it's, you know, blowing in the fire. But it's very clearly, oh, look at the words that we are losing as I turn this page from one to the next as it burns up. So I feel like there should be a there's a really good idea of films that are incredibly heavy handed and ones that work and ones that don't. So in Mm. recent time, I can think of what was the name? Uh, Don't look up. Yeah. From McKay, Adam McKay. McKay, I hated that movie. I thought it was so dumb in its heavy handedness like it was so over and like and that kind of was the point too it was never meant to be a subtle movie but then i watched um ava duvernay's movie origin and that is very very heavy-handed as well and incredibly manipulative but something about it i was just like yeah i'm I'm fine with it being like that and kind of storm center sits in closer to the origin side where i'm like it's incredibly obvious but i'm kind of okay with it even though it is a bit silly at times and a bit much at times um but i always find it interesting how sometimes it can work for a film to be to be very obnoxious and arrogant in in its messaging um rather than the subtle type of filmmaking that we would generally prefer i think do you think this film would have been better handled if paul schrader had done it (laughs) <laughs> what movie wouldn't be better handled without Paul Schrader? Come on, you know what? That was my segue. <laughs> Today, Alicia, you are the the queen of segues, so I appreciate that. Hollywood, a city of power, lust, and murder. A city where movie magic has turned into black magic. 
a place where people get murdered in mysterious ways. Into this shadowy world of supernatural corruption steps Detective H. Philip Lovecraft, Private Eye. Somebody put the big whammy on Gottlieb and cut him down to size. I think the police think I killed Mickey. Forget the gurney. You can get him out of here in a lunch pail. Uh, All right. Lastly, we have Witch Hunt, a film where Dennis Hopper plays a private investigator, literally named H.P. Lovecraft, who lives... (laughs) In a world where magic is slowly taking over the world. After the murder of a studio executive, Lovecraft looks into it, refusing to use magic. This is a world where famous writers from the past are brought to life using magic to help write scripts and starlets use magic to change their appearance. A senator who has his eyes on the White House starts a campaign against magic in what is a not-so-thinly-veiled allegory about communism. The film was actually a made-for-TV movie that aired on HBO and was a sequel of the 1991 TV movie Cast a Deadly Spell. This is a pretty cheesy but still fun take on McCarthyism. So to round out this show, Alicia, tell us about this film. It just looked bonkers to me. I mean, (laughs) reading the description, it was Paul Schrader directed this movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to watch it. It is it's it's something and angelo badalamanti I, I don't know how to pronounce it the guy who did the twin uh, oh, music yeah. peaks does the music here it's insane so fun yeah this this movie really feels like it basically was uh a plot of twin peaks where it was like yes Oh, this person's in a coma. What's going on in their coma? Let's see. Ooh, they're dreaming about Hollywood during communism. And <laughs> I, I just I just once again can't get over the fact that this is a Paul Schrader movie. Right. Like, if if anyone doesn't know who he is yet, like he he wrote Taxi Driver and <laughs> Raging Bull and other Scorsese American Gigolo. American Gigolo, which he also directed and has since become a notable director himself in the last few years. He's been directing forever, but in the last few years, he's really had a resurgence with movies like First Reform, The Card Counter, and Master Gardener. So seeing this, you know, very lighthearted take on communism by using magic and a very bewildering Dennis Hopper performance where I think... I don't think Dennis Hopper was acting. I think Dennis Hopper was just like, damn, look at all this crazy stuff happening around me. Like, this is basically what this movie was. I love this movie. I love Dennis Hopper. I'm a big Dennis Hopper fan. I think he's incredible. And, yeah, I think this was, like Alicia said, bonkers. It's just, it's such, especially in contrast to the other two films that we watched, this is such a different take. And that's why, actually, I'm really glad like the three that um, we ended up going with for this they really it really kind of worked out in a, in a very interesting way I think for our viewing pleasure of watching these three together because this one ends up being obviously a bit more modern because it's it's a 80s early 90s film um, but it's just nuts like and it's not what I think a lot of people think of when they think of noir um, mm-hmm. really because it is a bit I mean it's very campy as well uh, which yeah. I personally i loved it but i i just found it again a little heavy-handed in the way that they did it but like who cares it was really fun and i also want to say along with dennis hopper Cheryl lee rolf in this i love her because i remember her in moesha and i really really loved her in this movie because i thought she was fantastic as like top witch because i said when i was watching this i messaged lisa and i said I, sometimes I really want to be a witch. Like, I just feel like it would be really cool to be a witch. And this made me, this movie made me think that. Cause I was like, I think it would be really a pretty sweet gig to be a witch. As long as you didn't get caught. It's okay. Exactly. Yeah. You just, you have to be licensed, be a licensed witch. Like uh, her name is Kropotkin. Peter, it named after Peter Kropotkin, the anarchist, 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 communist, and also geographer. It's, it's amazing names. And um, yeah, the first name was Hippoletta too. The poster of it says from the producer of The Terminator and Aliens. I mean, that just sells <laughs> itself. You know? I, I will say this watching this movie for like the first 15, 20 minutes. I thought, I, I was like, oh my God, this is the worst movie I've ever watched. There's the scene <laughs> where. Uh, 
where Kropotka uh, conjures up William Shakespeare in yes. quite literally the worst special effects I've ever seen in a movie. I <laughs> don't know how this made it to, to screen. It was so bad. And I'm like, oh God, this is going to be, I'm going to be checking the timestamp of this movie every five minutes, wondering why two hours of my life have already passed in this five minute span. But after that, I kind of started digging the movie. I was like, oh, you know, this is this is fun. Yeah. I'm enjoying this. And like it was silly and everyone seemed to be on board with the silliness. And yeah, the special effects were still really awful. But luckily, I don't think any of it was as bad as that William Shakespeare conjuring scene. Because <laughs> that's going to go down in history. So bad. <laughs> to me, the worst one was when she takes the um, when the, the Kim character takes her is it the necklace oh, off? And, the then neck- and then she becomes she's normal. She's plain because she doesn't have makeup on. And you're supposed no. to be like, oh, man, like, that's rough. You have to go through life looking like that? Like, my goodness. Holistic? Oh, my God. Like, oh, no wonder you had that. No, I get it. You did need witchcraft. Like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> it's so funny. But I think the thing with the special effects is um, they're not great. Like, and I mean, you could you could say it's it's the time as well like it's just cgi wasn't obviously what it is today but it works i think within the context of the film it works because mm-hmm. the film is so just ridiculous in general that it kind of makes sense that the special effects also look stupid because and and then somehow altogether it comes as like a very enjoyable film and i think dakota what you said of like once you settle in and realize what kind of movie you're in for then it becomes really really enjoyable like if you want to sit down and, and you're thinking you're going to watch yeah, on the serious yeah yeah if you think you're gonna sit down and watch like a brando level performance then this is not the movie for you but if you just it's 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 i find it incredibly enjoyable and the fact that it's D- dennis hopper as well because mm-hmm. it seems like such an un-dennis hopper like movie but it kind of works because he's so gruff and weird and like at the very end when he goes aren't you forgetting something and then he just makes out with her Randomly. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? I was like, oh no, what is she forgetting? Did she forget her passport? What's happening? I was not expecting that, you guys. I, I want to say, it, it, it. he does such a good job of just being bemused, but also uh, kind of uh, old school private detective in the sense that he plays it well, you know, getting knocked down every other mm-hmm. second and just like coming back. I was like, Oh, my head's hurting. Give me some ice for this. Um, he, he it's, it's fun. He does a good job. I do have a lot of questions about the plot. I don't get the <laughs> ending. Do you guys get it? Like did well, Moxa double cross the Senator? I, what, how, why did they become partners at the end? Um, I, I, I think that the Julian Sands character, Finn, Finn Moxa, I think, I think he's, his allegiance was to himself and realized that, uh, the Senator was not actually on his side. And so I think it was more of an act of self, self-preservation. He is sort of like a, uh, chaotic neutral character. If you were to, you know, do an alignment chart on him where he can be the good guy or the bad guy, depending on, you know, where you're standing, but he's always going to be himself. He can be your angel or your devil. Yeah. And like to sort of talk a bit more about the sort of McCarthyist plot of this, it mostly comes from the fact that you've got Eric Bogosian who plays this uh, senator character who is quite literally leading a uh, witch hunt charge uh, that is going to culminate in an actual witch burning um, and people that use magic uh, – belong in secret societies and they're there to undermine the government and sell out the u.s government all that sort of stuff so it's like if you were to take storm center and then just like ever so slightly change the the language of the words to uh be slightly ambiguous you would get witch hunt um because it is just as brazen with what its politics are they just you know if you were to literally change you know control f magic for um communism it would be like the same script i just want to ask you guys sorry this is a sidetrack for your point but you you mentioned eric Bogosian. did anyone think he was going to turn into a frog at the end like yes okay i didn't realize that he was two people yeah i thought he was or... just gonna be a frog <laughs> but no i yeah again it's like it is the heavy handedness. i think using 
like I mean the term witch hunt does come from somewhere right and so I I kind of like that they brought that idea of you know the Salem witch trials into this chaotic of a film and it 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 isn't the 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 analogies are obviously right in our face and doesn't it's not difficult to see what they're trying to do with this film but i also i like it i like i like that they're just taking it taking it away from the actual subject matter and making it seem something completely different even if even if the lines that they're trying to draw are incredibly pronounced and um, very obvious but i do like that idea of any film like in any movie i always like the idea when you're taking the theme of a certain topic and then um, branching it out into being something else no matter how much like district nine is one that i'm thinking of right now like the idea of it's very obvious what the messaging is and what they're trying to do and the analogies they're trying to make um but i always think it's it's a nice challenge like it's kind of a healthy challenge for filmmakers to do that in an interesting way and i don't think anybody can deny that witch hunt is at a minimum a very interesting movie mm-hmm. and to kind of go back what we were talking about or what i mentioned earlier with uh, kind of like the character kind of growing to have a point of view what's interesting with um hopper's character lovecraft here is he doesn't he remains ambivalent to the end he he has bits where he's like oh yeah magic is okay i don't really care about it but we learned that he used to he used it once but even at the end, he's like, I'm going to use it to save somebody. But yeah, he remains, as opposed to um, Terry or Alicia in Storm Center, he just is very middle ground, very um, apolitical, which is fascinating. But it, it's also what a private detective, I guess, is supposed to be. It's what um, a Raymond Chandler um, Marlowe would be. He's very apolitical-ish. He has no allegiances, just all by himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he really someone that's sort of caught in between the two different worlds because you've got like the the full on magic world with with Kropokin and, and Maxa who are, are doing their magic both for maybe good and possibly nefarious reasons, but then you've got like the um, you know the law side of things with the senator and he's sort of stuck in the middle where he's like, hey, I'm just trying to live my life and do my job and solve this murder. Um, And so, yeah, it's very interesting that he is so centrist and apolitical, which eventually he does end up making a choice in siding with the magic side, uh, even if he doesn't use it himself. Mm -hmm. I think that was a very interesting where it's like, hey, these people have a right to exist. I'm not myself magical and I don't want to be magical, but that doesn't mean we should um, other or condemn or straight up murder these people. Exactly. Yeah. In that sense, I guess he is kind of like uh, Betty Davis's character where he kind of respects their right to exist, like you say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty good one to do it. Now, do you think this movie would be better if the Coen brothers directed it <laughs> or if David Lynch directed it? I think it's perfect with Schrader. It just it needs his weirdness <laughs> with it. I feel like I'm Lynch gonna... would have taken it too seriously. I'm going to put a different name. I'm going to say David Cronenberg because I was watching this and I got a lot of Naked Lunch vibes from it. And then I thought, what if Cronenberg did this? That scene, like maybe Eric Rogosian would really would have turned into a frog then because I feel like yeah. that would have been a very a frog with a butthole. An incredible <laughs> Cronenberg movie. Like, I just feel like this could have been a great Cronenberg movie, especially at the time that it was made. Like, I feel like that would have been just such a wonderful thing do you guys notice on the wikipedia page for this movie they where they list the cast and they say dennis hopper as harry philip lovecraft and then in brackets it says same initials as howard phillips lovecraft but it's like it's the yeah. same name like i don't know why that was like whoever entered that yeah it's i didn't same, notice it's same initials like by the way it's the same initials but it's like it's the same name you guys uh, yeah <laughs> it's interesting because i find this movie is too PG for something like uh, Cronenberg, the Coen, mm-hmm. or David Lynch, yeah. or you know, even Paul Schrader to make. Yeah. Somehow they pull it off, though. Like, come on, <laughs> you gotta admit, this, this is a quality movie. I should say too, this isn't a movie. This is a TV film. Like this, uh, which I also find really interesting. It's a TV film, um, and yeah, I there's a lot of interesting people in it too. I, every time I was watching, I was like, oh, that person, like that person, like there's a character from. Um, 
uh, Seinfeld, like one of uh, George's girlfriends is in this movie. She plays Trudy. She was the one who was like super pretentious and uh, worked for the IRS and goes, has like a mental breakdown. So it's like, I was watching like, God, and, but if you think of like the time period, there's always a lot of people look at Oppenheimer and be like, there's a lot of the actors in there, like that guy kind of actors, like, Oh, that Mm -hmm. guy. Like I know that guy. And in this movie, I find there was a lot of that for this specific time period. Um, Mm -hmm. especially my girl for Seinfeld because I do love a Seinfeld reference. Mm -hmm. And also had a very small appearance by Clifton Collins Jr., who I feel like only really became not even a household name, but doing bigger projects in the last, you know, 10 years or something like that. Yeah. He has a very interesting face, I think. He's he's a good face actor. Yeah, Yeah. I like it. Which is interesting to say that because he gets a pan in his face, a hot pan. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a zombie. There's a zombie. We didn't even talk about the zombie, you guys. Get the yeah, <laughs> and it, it's weird that like it is even acknowledged until like at the very end of his appearance. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's not until like the very end. <sighs> this movie's great, and I thank you, Alicia, for introducing it to me because I genuinely enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with this movie. As as like kind of stupid as it is, it's very fun and it's perfectly something that I enjoy. It's a pretty good palate cleanser if you watch all three of these movies. I watched this one first, but it's a good palate uh, cleanser if you watch it last. <laughs> yeah. Imagine this is a double feature with On the Waterfront. That's Oh, that's oh my jarring. god, that would be such that a good night. Jarring. That's jarring. I should say I didn't point out that in On the Waterfront there's uh Eva Marie Saint who plays uh Edie. She's uh she was on a Fraser episode too. So there's a lot of 90s sitcoms references in these movies. I'm just putting it out there. <laughs> she looked stunning and on the waterfront she looks stunning in fraser as well and i think when she was in fraser that would have been in i don't know what year that but like say mid 90s or whatever so she was like older but she was stunning in it too she plays roz's mother for anybody interested it's uh she's great she's she was a the the, uh i think the the attorney general for wisconsin that's who she plays in fraser anyways i digress continue (laughs) sorry well, I was just going to wrap this up by saying that both Witch Hunt and Storm Center are available to watch for free on YouTube. So I'm going to link to those in the show notes in case anyone does want to see what we're going on about and, and see the ridiculousness. Uh, on the Waterfront, I feel like, is a pretty readily available film. And I'm sure most film nerds have probably seen that one at some point or, or not in their life. Uh, so it would be interesting if you want to go back to watch that in one or both of the other two movies that we talked about today. I'd recommend Witch Hunt just because I think it's <laughs> I do fun. Too. Yeah. And on the waterfront, like, come on. Well, I shouldn't say everyone's seen it because Alicia hadn't seen it. So. Hey. <laughs> okay. But there's the thing. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Because I do think yeah. it does live up to the hype that it has. And I do think Brando lives up to the hype um, of his performance as well. So it is one of those classic movies that is very classic for a reason. And I don't think anybody can watch it come out of it and be like no i don't think it's as good as people say it is like it it really is a a tremendous movie really 100 percent stunning all right well i think that is a great place to wrap this week's episode up alicia thank you so much for coming on the show today and as always sharing your expertise in noir i had so much fun you guys this was thank you for doing this with me all these movies i first watches and i will love them forever (laughs) (laughs) excellent well uh do you have anything that you've been working on lately that you want to promote and what's the best way for people to find and follow your work um you can find me on twitter i refuse to call it x i'm at alicia mgl um and i've been writing a couple of real asian reviews over at the asian cut and yeah find me say hi i would love to talk about movies with you Fantastic. I will link to those in the show notes as usual. Uh, Rachel, what about you? What have you been working on and uh, where can people find you? Um, as always, it is at rachelho.com or underscore Rachel KH on uh, Twitter and or Instagram. I have done a few things, but there actually we just had an essay go up this morning on the Asian cut by Jericho, yes. who's been on um, the podcast and will be on again. And he wrote a, a really, really, really great essay about Saving Face and the Half of It, which are two Alice Wu movies. Um, and so if you haven't 
if you don't know who Alice Wu is or you've never heard of those films, um, I would highly recommend reading it. And if you do, I'd highly recommend reading it as well because it's a really, really, really great essay. And um, I just want to say Alice Wu retweeted it. And so I'm, I'm very proud of Jericho right now because I think it's, just, <laughs> it's, such, it's such a great piece. And um, yeah, I think he hit it out of the park. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to to share that as well. Um, we actually have a, a few reviews that have gone up on ContraZoomPod.com uh, just this past week, including The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes and one called Bad CGI Gator from Jeff Bulmer. And then another one, uh, Perfect Days from Paulo Bautista. So I will link to those in the show notes as well. We are doing more reviews lately, so make sure you are booking ContraZoomPod.com to see that. Uh, this has been a That Shelf podcast. Visit thatshelf.com for more great film discourse. Follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and threads at ContraZoomPod. What noirs did you watch this year? Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. And if you really like the show, consider tipping us on coffee. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.